0: episode 15 of everyday eternal six months and 10 episodes ago we discussed community building today we have an interview matt did with someone who spent the last several months building his local community from the ground up we'll follow that up with matt's report from the vegas invitational and then finally the everyday eternal year in review i'll hand it over to matt
1: so today we have one of our listeners with us michael Uh, also known as Mini-Elites on the Source, and he's going to be talking to us about growing a legacy community. And I know we talked a little bit about it before on one of our casts, but this is someone who has been kind of doing it over the last, uh, I guess, months and maybe up to a year. So, Michael, do you want to tell us about what's been going on?
2: For sure. Yeah, it's a a little bit more than a year. We started um, really seriously pushing for a legacy community in Halifax sort of mid-2012, around around summer of 2012, um, we basically we partnered up with, or built a, a good relationship with one of the uh, local stores that we have in our town. And uh, we worked with them to sort of establish a system that worked both for us as players and that benefited uh, them as a store. Uh, and by doing that, basically, uh, we would pay out entries in in terms of store credit. So, Um, They would still get cash at the end of the day, but the uh, players were still getting 100% payout at the end. And, um, yeah, we've been doing that for about a year and a half now, and it's been turning out well. We've grown from sort of consistent, you know, six to eight mans. Uh, Our largest turnout has been 22 people, which isn't bad for a Thursday night. And normally we sit between 14 to to 16 players on a weekly basis. Nice yeah no it's been it's been really really satisfying um in Halifax it's a fairly small city um it's a little over 300,000 people that live in the greater Halifax area but there seems to be a a huge following when it comes to uh to magic in general I first got into oh I first got into magic back in (coughs) in like onslaught era but that was that was high school kitchen table nonsense um But I I got back into Magic in about 2009 when M10 came out, and there's a pretty huge standard scene that goes on here. And after playing through the Zendikar, uh, Zendikar, a little more Zendikar shards and to an extent Zendikar scars, but playing you know sort of that high power level Jace Mind Sculptor, Squadron Hawk, Stoneforge Mystic. And then moving on from that, well, I, I guess I just wanted to play that particular standard metagame for the rest of my life, so I, I spent a lot of time uh, researching Legacy and getting people interested in the format, and um, yeah, it's, it's turned out well so far.
1: Excellent. I'm glad to hear that like building a community has actually worked for you instead of, say, like a collapsing of a community or something like that
2: yeah I, the the most difficult thing for me is just sort of getting used to the fact that sometimes you have your your slow months um I'm sort of established in my life and i you know I have a full time job so i I have my commitment scheduled out, but it seems a lot of the a lot of the magic players are are in university so come exam time we get uh, diminished turnouts <laughs> but but that's all right I guess it's just the The biggest lesson has been not to sort of lose lose faith in the community. Once people really invest in the format, uh, they they will keep coming out, uh, which is good.
1: Okay, so do you have any? Would you consider any downsides in the community right now, like sample proxies or like? Well, how do you? Oh yeah,
2: well I should uh, probably mention that. One of the things that before I go to downsides, one of the things that has been beneficial in establishing. Um, the legacy community, has been allowing um, we, just, we just say we allow proxies at our, our Thursday locals um, there's, there's no set number, we do allow unlimited proxies, and aside from one person trolling, we've never had anyone max that out um, but yeah uh, so that's, that can be sort of a, <laughs> a uh, hot area people can test from time to time mean, the downside of proxies is if you don't manage it well, well, it can lead to, to confusing game states, for one. Because if it's people writing on fronts of basic lands, you know, and just writing F-O-W, and, and, you know, you have people who are newer to the format, you know, that can create for some awkward instances. And then some people, uh, though I disagree with this, but uh, some people tend to think that, you know, if you allow proxies, there's no incentive for people actually to buy in. And you know, all you're doing is, is sort of establishing this um, flaky group of players uh, that that really only show up to local events. So those, I mean, those are the two quote-unquote downsides. Um, I haven't really seen that. Um, the out of those two, the the only thing that's ever really come up has been you know the occasional confused confused player because of someone, you know, abbreviating a card on a, in the front of a, you know, basic forest or something. But, you know, the the positives, I think, really outweigh the negatives, because the most helpful thing um, with allowing proxies is that it gives people a chance, you know, people who maybe just play standard or just draft, it gives them a chance to actually try out the format um, without investing in it. Um... And what I've found is that when people have that option and, you know, they come out one or two weeks and they have, you know, they have uh, they want to play like a, a blue-white uh, Stoneblade deck, right? And they've got their Ponders and, you know, they've got a, maybe a Jete and a couple of the, the creatures and such. And they don't need to go out and buy underground seas, tundras, and flooded strands. And they come out and they fall in love with it. I mean, that's the the thing about Legacy that I think holds true for uh, a lot of us is once you start playing, like it, it completely takes over um, what you want to do in Magic. Like that is that becomes your your priority. So it doesn't take long for people to go from you know proxies to hey, you know uh, if Alex bought a Tundra or you know Ian bought a Misty Rainforest or something like that. And before long, they have pretty much an entire deck. And um, there's a couple of us who have pretty extensive collections, so uh, when a tournament comes around, you know, we always support those players by um, lending cards and and such. So they they still have the options to play um, in non-proxied events. But for for locals, it's really, really good at getting people out every week.
1: Yeah, I think as long as you have a large enough engaging community, those people who are proxying have incentive to buy in. I think if you have a... Really flaky community who's kind of very running hot and cold, and you don't have a place to really congregate to play. Then I think those people, those people who have proxies, have no, whether it's financial or emotional investment, yeah, in your community.
2: Yeah, of course, of course. Well, in um, in Surrey, do you guys allow proxies at your locals?
1: We do. We had a bit of an enforcement uh, debate as of late, because people have been showing up lately to try out new decks with proxies, and before we did have a 10 proxy limit or a 15 proxy limit or something. But we haven't been enforcing it, so now we're just kind of deciding, well, most of the, to be honest, most of the people who show up have multiple complete decks ready to go. So I mean, the issue is not really there except for somebody new coming in. So I think that... We're gonna relax any sort of proxy rules that we had, so people can try new things or do whatever we want to do. I think getting people in is the main thing.
2: Mm-hmm. And and well, I think you also just said it on the head too, because it allows you know it allows players who are a bit more established, maybe someone who does have their set of tundras and they've got you know they've got their blue fetches. Let's let's say they have Esper uh, Stoneblade together. Well, if you allow proxies, then maybe they want to switch it up. Maybe they want to play. Let's say Elves Miracle or Control. Or, yeah, even, even a completely different deck. You know, these are people who have invested a ton into the format. And um, while certainly uh, we have decks that, that we enjoy more than others, I don't think people want to grind out the exact same deck every freaking Thursday for the rest of their life. You know what I mean? Like, I think I think having the option for the people who are already established to maybe try something out. Uh, like, for example, like I, I can build... Any de- like, I've, I have my 40 duels, 40 fetches, but let's say I wanted to play high tide for a week because I'm particularly sour and just want to make me yeah. life. Um, I mean, I don't own candelabras, and it's not like I I, I can't go out and just drop $300 per candelabra to, to try out a deck that I'm not really familiar with. So, yeah, it, it's good for allowing people who are established who have... Paid their dues, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, um, to to do that, and also with doing that, I think you create uh, a more competitive metagame, right? Because if you, and this is this is the one thing, because we've discussed, should it be unlimited proxies? Should it be ten or fifteen or something like that? And I'm a firm believer that it, it if it's unlimited proxies, you know, first of all, it it has not like i said it's it's rarely abused but second of all i think it it creates a a more competitive local metagame right like people are more generally you'll find people playing tiered decks as opposed to making budget uh
1: mono red burn or something yeah
2: yeah or like oh well i'm playing i'm playing some whatever two colored i'm playing sneak and show but i have steam vents you know what I mean? Like that—that that just creates an awkward situation, and it's just sort of punishing the person who just doesn't have the the money, who just wants to play and and wants to be part of that community.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think like there's a thread on the source right now. It's like, what would you play if money was no object? And it's I, ideally that sh- that should always be the way it is. What you should play with either you want to play or what's going to be the best deck for you or However, you decide to play a deck.
2: Yeah, and man, oh man, I wish money wasn't an object. Like I've got, I've got some money in the game, but you know, it it it's so difficult to have a really like a a huge gauntlet, you know, for your average person to do that. It's that's a huge money investment. And even like even when I was getting into Legacy, sort of the end of two thousand nine, early twenty ten, like yeah, Flooded Strands were thirty bucks, but like. That still that wasn't cheap either. So, I'm I'm just sort of lucky I got in with when I did. I I almost feel bad for people who, who you know look at legacy. Maybe they watch they start playing standard a couple months ago, and then they watch some SEG live, uh, footage, and you know they get really really excited about the format, and they go, okay, okay, you know I I have a full time job. I've got my things together. I can you know afford standard. Let's take a look at <laughs> legacy. Oh. Four my four underground seas, there's eight hundred bucks. My four polluted deltas, there's four hundred bucks. And I mean you can look around and find them for different prices, but it's still it's a sizable amount of money.
1: Oh for sure. So yeah, proxying. I also think that like if you're gonna host tournaments giving away staple prizes is better than cash.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, um you know that that's perfect. Especially if if you've had the luxury of picking those staples up where it can be a little bit more beneficial uh sort of the payout can be a little bit more uh, uh, generous at those tournaments as well. I know you've done that in the past where, you know, because you had the sort of the uh good fortune <laughs> of being yeah. able to pick up duels or or staples, right, before these massive price increases. Like that's that's what a way to get people invested, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Like I have 12 force of wills right now and I'm planning to give away eight over the next couple tournaments just because, well, if I can get them at $25, it's, yeah, you know, I can give them away at very reasonable values, exactly. and I, it's no real skin off my back.
2: Yeah, and as a TO, you're not, you're not losing money, but you don't need to make that retail value back in order to, to have a generous prize pay.
1: Exactly, and I think that's what maybe a lot of tournament organizers have to kind of get through their mind at first, when you're building a community, is you won't always make money. Yeah. And to be honest, your goal should probably not to be make mo- not to make money in the first little bit. It's just to build a crowd.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're not going to make money if you don't have a, a community to to sell to, in a sense, right? Like, I I'm very much in in magic just for because I I really enjoy the social aspect. I enjoy the game. It's not something that I look at uh, as a way to make money. But there's nothing wrong with that. I think that it's it's important to have people who are out are organizing tournaments and if, if you know profit is their incentive you know power to them
1: so now i think i should maybe do my vegas report mm-hmm. so as you guys might have known i uh got an invite to the invitational from my finish in seattle uh in november 2012 so i uh i flew up to vegas and kobe was also there and we had to play some Standard and some Legacy, and then some Standard and some Legacy, and then there was a uh, Standard Top 8. So in Standard, I was originally going to play Jund, because, th- at least in my mind, I thought, hey, having Anger of the Gods and Slaughter Games and Rakdos Revenge, or whatever, would be amazing to have. However, the deck really is, is good, but not great. Your mana is super inconsistent, and, I mean, you never shuffle your deck in Standard, which is a very weird feeling. You're basically whatever the order of my deck is. That is the order it is for the rest of the game, and that's all. So I really wasn't happy about that. However, about five days before the event, I switched over to black-white. So basically, mono-black, cutting the the gray merchants for uh, Blood Barons, and Blood Baron is a house in Standard. Um, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. Pro-black, pro-white. 4-4 four, for four, 5 is insane, especially in a format where there's no good removal. So the only good removal is Devour Flash, sack creatures. So I mean, you basically play it on turn 6 when you have Mutavolt open and you can't lose. So, however, I go into Standard and I run up against uh, blue-white control decks splashing black or red for my four, f- for my four rounds And all of my opponents, even when I sometimes have over the course of the first, say, five, six turns of the game, two to four pieces of discard, somehow managed to mize three Sphinx's revelations and just blow me out of the game. So I went 1-3 in standard, and then I got to legacy, and I was certainly not pleased, but I figured I could still 4-0 legacy quite conceivably, and should be no problem. My sideboard was pretty prepared for True Nemesis. I was running two Golgari Charm, a Toxic Deluge, a Zealous Persecution, and two Pernicious Deeds. So six pieces of basically dedicated True Name Nemesis slash equipment hate. So, I'm playing against some guy who was also obviously 1-3 in Standard. Uh, By his mannerisms, he did not play Legacy. I I could tell. Just the way he talked. It's fine. Nice guy named Daryl, but I could tell. So, we shuffle up, I catch a glimpse of his deck, he's on Stoneblade, no problem. It also confirmed when I go first turn Thoughtseize, he goes, he has an island in play and he goes Force of Will Pitching Jace, I'm like, well that can basically <laughs> only be Stoneblade, cool. So he plays Stoneforge Mystic, I kill it, he does something else, I kill it, and uh, then he drops True Nemesis on turn 3, and I said, okay, so my turn 4 was, uh, basically Sylvan Library, Dark Confidant, or something. Like, I was, I was fine. So then he attacks for three, and then he drops Truen Nemesis number two, and I go, oh, this is not good. But, I'm still okay, there's no equipment, I can still race this, it's not a problem. Then, on turn five, he drops Turn and Nemesis number three. And, of course, I can't deal with that. So, I lose. Then we shuffle up for game two, I board in my six pieces of hate, no problem. I open a hand of, like, Thalia plus Golgari Charm, and I'm like, that should be okay. Thalia will slow him down, eventually he'll remove it, and then I'll just Golgari Charm. It'll be fine. So we go back and forth, back and forth, I'm on top, and suddenly I wasteland him. So he's on three lands, and then he run, And he has a Batter Skull uh, with no token under it. He rips True Name Nemesis, drops it, and I'm at, like, I guess at this time about 15, no problem. He rips runner-runner land and is able to equip Batterskull to the true nemesis and kill me. So he just had like the most luck sack yeah. draws in both games, and there's nothing I can do about that. So of course, at 1-4, I was not in the running for day two, so I dropped. Uh, after that, I proceeded to enjoy Las Vegas. Make some money? Uh, I went to the blackjack tables, and blackjack is an interesting game. All I'm saying is Blackjack Switch is also a very interesting game where you play two hands of Blackjack at the same time and you can switch the top card. However, the dealer pushes on 22. And I'm not sure if you guys have done the math for Blackjack. I certainly hadn't. But after looking at the game a little bit more, 22 comes up, like, decently often, at least in our game. So the dealer not having to pay out on 22 was actually kind of balls. Um... So I definitely won't be playing Blackjack Switch anymore. Or as we were calling it, Blackjack Switch. So... Blackjack is fun. Made some money. We went to the Outlet Malls. I bought a briefcase for my cards, so now I don't have to carry them around in a shitty bag anymore. I actually have a leather briefcase to play Legacy in. Yeah! So... The Outlet Malls of America are amazing. I will... I will concede that point. So then I decided, do I want to play this dirty standard format on Saturday? And the answer was no. So I didn't. <laughs> then Sunday rolled around, and I'm like, okay. So I made a few more changes to my deck, and I said, okay. As long as I don't run into it, as long as I do okay in the, the legacy format, I'll be, I'll be fine. So I play against, what, Esperblade, Infect, and Jund and go 0-3 f- somehow. Against matchups where I should be very favored, I'm not. I go 0-3. I drop. Not super interesting. A uh, friend of mine, the judge on the previous cast, uh, Michael, he went. Uh, he went to the top 32 of the Invitational. He won himself $500. Oh, nice. Yeah, good for him. A uh, friend of mine made day two, but did not top 32. A uh, friend of mine, the friend of mine, Michael, beat Sam Black for the win and in for top 32. That's an achievement so. in itself. Yeah, so got a nice picture of that. It was good. Uh overall, the tournament was really well run. They had security at the door tagging your bag and your wrist and always checking and it was it was really good. So the tournament was well run. I think the attendance was actually quite low just because of the fact of there were so many empty chairs for the open. It was it was ridiculous. Hmm. So I think we still had 250 players, but they had definitely prepared for I think up to 600 and it just wasn't there.
2: Well, I mean, the last time there was a you know the the last time there was a big tournament in Las Vegas they you know broke all records for the modern yeah, we were, yeah we were
1: we were in the Cashman Center, which is the same one that they had at last time, and we were in like one quarter of it and apparently the entire thing was filled oh my God for the five thousand yeah. person event and it was the building is huge I mean if you imagine Costco, the average Costco yeah. now imagine like ten times as large of a covered area it's amazing oh my God. how big that convention yeah. center was yeah so overall True and nemesis uh, judging by the percentages that I was looking at, I saw a lot of Jund in the open. I saw a lot of uh, Esperblade uh, deathblade, uh, noble blade, I guess you could call it Bantblade, blade and but not a lot of like ant or sneaked show or anything like that in the Invitational though the legacy portion, I would say at least sixty percent of the people were running Esperblade.
2: Oh really. It normally, yeah, it normally seems like there's a a, a default to like a, a sneak attack deck with a lot of the the pros, right?
1: Yeah, either that or a deck that a deck that either wins really fast or a deck that's good against everything, and I think definitely a lot of people went to those two extremes in the invitational. So, overall, it was it was good. It's just Troon and Nemesis is very non-interactive and not very fun. Now, I'm not going to argue over a banning, because we're not going to do another episode on Troon and Nemesis, because we already did two, but the card, whether or not you agree it needs to be banned or not, is not fun and not interactive. And deck design does have to change with Troon and Nemesis, because the combo decks are fine against it. They don't care. But all the other mid-range decks all the other fair decks do have to change their angle of attack to deal with this card, because otherwise it just threes you to death.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, we've talked a little bit about True Name, and I've listened to you uh, talk about it on the podcast before, but yeah, I think this is is a time where you really need to punish people for defaulting to that, Um, and if that's main deck Golgari charms, then so be it.
1: Yeah. If we had to do a year in review for Legacy, what really... What the year turned out to be was continue on from 2012 until November 2013. Yeah. And then Troon and Nemesis shows up.
2: Well, I mean, I haven't actually compared it, but what I'm getting is... Is sort of what it was like when when Delver first came out. Granted, you can interact with Delver, but there was this really quick change in the metagame where... that was just slotting into a lot of decks and was making... I would actually say this
1: is more or less like the mental misstep. Yeah, yeah. Ubiquity. I mean...
2: But you don't see goblins running True Name Nemesis yet.
1: Oh, of course. Yeah, sure, fine. (laughs) The spells are actually different. But a lot of decks have just said, if I'm playing blue, I have to have a good reason why I'm not running True Name Nemesis. So I think the only deck that's blue in the format that really isn't running it is Bug Delver, because it's designed not to run that um like shardless miracles. bug
2: in in team america like they well if you have three mana you want to be casting shardless agent and cascading into some sort of crazy value And team america just has you know they go over the top with cards like uh Tombstalker. Oh, I'm michael Bogardis, thanks for having me on it was a blast it was really fun talking about uh talking about legacy
0: So let's talk about some of the new cards that 2013 brought us, um, both some that were expected to do something and didn't, and the ones that did bring us something. Um, the first one on my list from Gatecrash, something I hadn't realized, you know, is actually a very new card, is Enter the Infinite, which brought us almost an entirely new archetype of deck, um, out the of The OmniTel deck. The Omnitale we- deck. Um. Real quick, uh, in case anyone hasn't seen Enter the Infinite. Eight, blue, 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 blue. That's converted mana cost 12. Obviously this is not being cast. Draw cards equal to the number of cards in your library, then put a card from your hand on top of your library. You have no maximum hand size until next turn. So this wins by uh, putting, what is it? uh, You put Emrakul on top, and then you play a Clash card that does two damage. Clash is where Flip, the top card of your deck, whoever has a higher converted mana cost, Uh, wins, and it repeats that over and over again until you just die, and it's very frustrating
1: and how the deck kind of gets up and running is you have you either show and tell in a Dream Halls or you show and tell in uh, the Omniscience so what Omniscience does is it allows you to to play cards for free so you can play the Enter the Infinite draw your whole deck, put Emmercool on top Cunning Wish for Release the Ants and then you get to release the ants. We saw this kind of take off a little bit after uh, it was GP and it was one of the European GPs, I think it was Amsterdam. Basically where you saw people releasing the ants for the first time and people were it was it was a new thing. Would people... you call it
0: GP Amsterdam?
1: no. I would call it Amsterdam because there's a lot of ad nauseum tendrils, but not because of uh, release the ants. Okay. Um or Dream Halls lets you pitch a card to play the card for free. Like, you, basically everything turns into a pitch spell, which also works. Um, so yeah, without Gate Crash, that wouldn't be a deck at all. And I have to agree with Sam, I did not even realize that that deck was that young, so to speak.
0: And now, another thing you've pointed out is that they're playing Emrakul as part of their combo kill. They're also playing Show and Tell and Emrakul, so this is still in the vein of a Show and Tell deck, but it's definitely winning in a very different way, because it... Its goal is to win the turn it plays show and tell. It's not going to wait and swing next turn. It's going to win now. One other thing that this deck has that uh very rare in the format is it plays the only non-basics it plays are fetch lands. Other than that is 100% mono blue. It generally plays uh, four of the big three cantrips, brainstorm, ponder, and uh, preordain. So it's very good at setting itself up. Uh, it's hard for it to get blown out in terms of uh, being wastelanded or anything else that can really uh, tax it hard.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a slow combo deck. You're going off on turn 5. But you just slowly sit there and play land, so you can't be disrupted by soft counters, and then you just out-hard counter them by having access to Flusterstorm, Will, and Cunning Wish for more counter spells or bounce or any sort of answer if need be.
0: Yeah, you're going off on turn five, but in those five turns, you're, uh, you know, putting back two things with Brainstorm, fetching away and drawing a Force of Will every turn, or something of that nature. Uh, Onto the next card on my list of new stuff. Uh, One that a lot of people thought would go somewhere, uh, obviously didn't, was Beck and Call, which is the split card. Call, not really a big deal, but Beck is uh, green and a blue. Whenever a creature enters the battlefield this turn, you may draw a card. Uh, A lot of people thought this might see play as a 5th or 6th... Um, what's the card I'm looking for, Matt?
1: A Glimpse of Nature.
0: Yes, a 5th or 6th Glimpse of Nature. Um, did not end up happening at all. I guess people don't want to splash blue, and you don't really need the extra Glimpse of Nature. It's kind of... You can go off uh, without all that extra card draw. It certainly helps, but...
1: And also, too, I mean, the way that the, the Elf deck has started to function has actually fundamentally changed over the past... You know, six to eight months. I mean, we'll talk about that when we get to the Rise of Elves section of the cast, but basically, Beck was no longer needed. And Beck also, it also says when a creature comes into play, not when it's cast, Glimpse is strictly better. Yes, that's true. In terms of mana cost and being able to, I mean, at least with Glimpse of Nature, you could say, cast it, have it go through, and then run all your guys into a counterbalance and still draw cards.
0: Well, and obviously the reason that, uh, there is a reason that it's enter the battlefield instead of cast, and that's that the call section of Beck and Call is put four 1-1 white bird creatures. Um, it costs six converted mana cost to call, so not something you're likely to ever see in Legacy, but that would be the reason why that card is worded differently. Um, another big one, this time out of Dragon's Maze, um, Notion Thief.
1: Oh, uh, yes. The it's not something
0: thief. that's seen a lot of play, uh, it's, but there have been some crazy plays on camera. It's been a, maybe two of in sideboards. Definitely something that, considering how much people like to draw cards in Legacy, uh, could be a continued threat.
1: It was a good answer, actually, against the Enter the Infinite decks, because as soon as they would draw their deck, you would respond with Notion Thief, and you'd get to draw a bunch of cards. So, overall, though, the card has seen less and less play over the last, I would say, four to five months. Just because there were less and less J decks in the format, which are punished by this card.
0: Well, and one of the problems with it is, it is 4 converted mana cost, 2 blue, black. Um, 4 mana, and Magical Christmas Land, you're responding to a Brainstorm or uh, to a Jace activation with it. And 4 mana, to get them one time, probably not worth it. It might win you the game, but there are better things you could be doing with 4 mana.
1: Like playing your own Jace and winning the game.
0: Yes, exactly. And drawing even more cards every turn.
1: (laughs) Um,
0: My next one, another one that a lot of people expected to see something happen with, um, no one's quite sure, is Ral Uh, One of the interesting things about Ral is I just bought one uh, to throw in Vintage just for fun, and it has not decreased in price very much because people are still thinking it will do something, and the main reason is uh, the plus one ability is tap a target permanent, then untap another target permanent, obviously interacts well with Time Vault. But thus far, we haven't really seen any of that actually happening.
1: Yeah, the question is, is it really better than any of the Tezzerets in Vintage? No. I think the other Tezzeret, Tezzeret the Seeker, which allows you to tutor and untap artifacts, is basically the guy that you want, if you're looking for Time Vaults. So I think this guy has some potential if you are running some sort of crazy, you know, blue-red stasis deck. But... I think it, most of its application has to do with possibly being included in Vintage at some point.
0: Well, and it's, uh, its other options are, of course, not bad. Minus two to deal three damage to a creature or player. Certainly something that uh, Lightning Bolt sees play in both these formats. But um, And it's minus seven, flip five coins, take an extra turn for each one that comes up heads. These are things that are certainly good, but as we say, for four mana, especially four mana with different colors, you'd probably just rather Jace.
1: Yeah, I could see it at three mana, like one blue-red. I think this guy would definitely see a lot more play. Four mana? If you're not Jace, what are you?
0: Alright, so switching gears now, back to a card that is seeing a lot of play in uh, multiple formats. Young Pyromancer. This is my personal favorite. I'm playing him in Vintage right now. Uh, One and a red whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell put a 1-1 red elemental creature token into the battlefield. Um, Obviously in... uh, Its applications are different in different formats. It's seen a little bit of play in rug-based decks because they play so many cantrips and counterspells that it's just naturally going to grow. It's also seen a bit of play in blue-red Delver decks, which are primarily Delver plus Burn. Um, In Vintage, it's seeing play across a little bit more kind of stuff. It sees play in kind of combo-y decks where it's an alternate win condition. It also is in there's a gust-based control deck um, this is certainly um, one of the more interesting things that has come out of uh, of R&D this year. And not only is it uh, one of the more interesting things, it's an uncommon from a core set.
1: Yeah, that core set. Sometimes printing cards that get used every once in a while. To be honest, in Legacy, I don't see the application of this guy being that good in the next little while. As people are battling more and more Nemesis. You MSI, know, they're going to be hating on more and more X1s. So, having a guy that produces a bunch of 1-1s and is an X-1 himself might not be the best character to be having around. Golgari Charm definitely likes this guy.
0: Uh, one of the other things that's interesting, there have been some interesting decks based around it, because obviously you're going to have a lot of tokens with this guy in Legacy, because you're playing things like Brainstorm and Days and Force of Will, which are you know low-cost or zero-cost and get you a guy. Um, that results in two things that are really interesting. One is you get a, you play a lot more cards where maybe you don't play them at a great time because you get the extra value of having a guy. So, for example, they might bolt your Pyromancer. They have open mana. You daze it. So, yeah, they pay it. Your Pyromancer dies. But you still have a guy, and now they're tapped down. And I found when I was playing this, you see a lot of plays like that where you say, you know, this isn't the best thing I could do right now. But now that Young Pyromancer's on the battlefield, it makes it a much better thing to be doing. So it adds value to all your all of your spells. There was pretty also... Sorry, go ahead,
1: Matt. Pretty good with the Gitaxian Probe as well.
0: Yes, uh, and that's there's been a Grixis Delver list that uh, ran both Gitaxian Probe and Cabal Therapy. So you Gitaxian Probe them for two life, see their hand, sacrifice a dude, and Cabal Therapy them for free with perfect information of their hand.
1: I like the sounds of that.
0: Another thing that came out of it uh, hasn't seen a lot of wins. It's seen some play because it was featured in a Star City uh, premium article. Is Pyromancer Opposition, and uh, Opposition allows you to tap a permanent to tap one of their permanents, essentially. Well, obviously you're going to be making a lot of permanents. It also plays Bitter Blossom, so you have tokens galore. You play kind of like a standard Delver list, and then once you have enough tokens, you just lock them out of the game. Have you seen that list, Matt?
1: Not really, no.
0: It's it's really cool, it's really interesting, it's really pain in the ass, but there's it's obviously got weaknesses like Golgari Charm, as you've mentioned. But it's one of those things that adds value to all sorts of spells, especially cheap instants, which are very popular in both Legacy and Vintage. So I'm sure this will continue to be seeing play uh, for many years. Hmm. Uh, moving on to a little more recent, out of Theros, we had... Um, Not seeing a whole lot of play because this particular deck isn't so great, but uh, among people who play this deck, it's certainly fit in, is Ashen Rider. Ashen Rider, also known as Strictly Better Angel of Despair.
1: Oh yes. You see a lot of of decks jamming this in when they can't deal with any sort of show-and-tell deck. You just hope to god you run this in your opening hand and they play show-and-tell. So
0: the and the main difference here we were discussing this a couple days ago like why it's better is it's uh it costs more. It's the same power toughness. It's got flying. Angel of Despair is when it enters the battlefield destroy a permanent. Not bad at all. Ashen Rider is when it enters or dies exile. So instead of throwing it to the graveyard, it exiles it and it does it twice.
1: So whether that would or not that would actually matter is unknown. But
0: but there are certainly many uses of having things in the graveyard that are popular uh, in Legacy today. Uh, Deathrite, Shaman, uh, and Threshold-based decks uh, among them.
1: I mean, I, didn't particu- I don't particularly like this card or that strategy of I hope I have it in my hand when they show and tell. I don't think that's... that's oh, really really
0: where, where this is good is in the decks that we're already playing, Angel of Despair, which is primarily Reanimator.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, I have Master of Waves on my list only because... Uh, It did uh, see some play at the GP. Uh, Saito immediately pulled it out of his list afterwards, because 4 mana, just a little too much, but worth mentioning that it was there.
1: Master Waves existed in Legacy for a brief period. Yes, it was
0: there. Uh, There are still people discussing its merits uh, in the Merfolk thread on the source, but 4 mana is a lot for anything in Legacy that doesn't just win you the game immediately.
1: Correct. Next...
0: Uh, next up, a card that I have thus far seen no uh, copies of in Legacy, or in Vintage, but I'm sure has the ability to see some sometime, and has been the all-star card of Theros in non-eternal formats, is Nycthos Shrine and Nyx, which is the small Gaia's Cradle. Two, and tap, choose a color, add mana to your mana pool, equal to your devotion to that color. Obviously, in any kind of mono deck, that's going to be a lot of mana. Um, not anything that's been super useful yet, but another thing that definitely has potential in the future. Um, and it has shown in the Devotion decks that have come out in Standard thus far that, at least in Standard, it's definitely very, very good to have that much mana.
1: I think, personally, Nixos has more play, not in Elves, because they already have Guy's Cradle. The, the only deck that I can really think is maybe Mono Black Control, running like Gatekeepers and Obliterators, because that's where you really get... Black seems to have a lot of creatures and stuff that have the most colored mana costs.
0: Well, and it it would certainly be a Mono deck, and your primary Mono colored decks are Goblins, which has Vile instead of that, Merfolk, which has Vile instead of that, Elves, which has Gaia's Cradle, and... Death and Taxes, which has Aether Vials, so you're kind of having to dig into the tier one and a half, tier two pile to get somewhere where you might use this anyway, but worth watching out for. Mm-hmm. And with the new legendary rule, uh, it can add quite a bit more mana.
1: And I definitely saw that in standard when I played in the awful, awful standard portion of the Invitational.
0: They added, what, eight mana to their mana pool, then played another Nykthos and added six more?
1: Yep. Not impressed.
0: Alright, now I know Matt's going to make fun of me for this, but this was a card I'm really disappointed hasn't seen any play, and granted, I am partially at fault for this, because I don't even own one, but Spellheart Chimera, I was really hoping for something.
1: Oh, no, I was definitely, I bought four and was hoping for something too. I think the card had potential, or still maybe does have potential. The problem is three mana is a little bit, a little bit much.
0: Yeah, Spellheart you know, Chimera is the one blue red. Its power and toughness is equal to the number of sorcery or instant car- sorcery and instant cards in your graveyard. And like you say, three mana is a lot for the kind of deck that's going to no, be. No, it's an X three. Oh, that's right. It's power. Its power is equal to the number of uh, instant sorcery. Still a three, but so it still gets bolted.
1: So that's the problem. I feel like if you're building a deck around this guy, unless I mean, it's quite possible. It's a two of in a blue red Delverish deck as your top end. Because at some point in the game, if you're like a blue-red Delver deck, you're going to have a bunch of instants of sorceries in the graveyard. They probably don't have a Deathrite Shaman online. This guy comes down as probably like a 5-3, and he's a flying trample clock. Fine. The only problem is he's so easily removed.
0: Well, and then your questions there are um, in a deck like blue-red is, first off, uh, are you playing Grim Lava Mancer? Because Grim Lava Mancer interacts really poorly with this. Are you playing Snapcaster Mage? Because every time you play Snapcaster Mage, Spellheart Chimera gets a little smaller. And you're saying we want this as a finisher, but if you don't have it as a finisher, you'd probably rather have venday and click in your three spot. Exactly. So I'm a little disappointed he didn't go anywhere. I don't know. Maybe I need to be brewing a little more. Um, I know Yo MTG Taps just uh, came back online and their big thing is stop bitching, start brewing, and apparently that's what I need to be doing.
1: But this is the legacy crowd. We're all an older crowd. Do we all have time to brew all the time?
0: Nope. I never brew at work. I don't know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, it's always good to be productive at uh, the place that pays your rent, right?
0: That pays for my magical cards?
1: Yep, that too.
0: Alright, another one that uh, a lot of hype around this card. um, Has seen a little bit of sideboard play. There's still a lot of people who think this card will do something eventually but hasn't yet, is Swan Song Counter target enchantment, instant or sorcery spell. Its controller gets a 2-2 bird.
1: I am holding my playset of Russian Swan Songs in front of me right now.
0: And have you used them at all?
1: Yep. They are a definite sideboard card as a 1-2 to two of. They're specifically very good if you're a deck that cannot deal with enchantments or you need a hard counter against instant or sorceries. You know what deck it's good against? Snake and Show. As a one of, having having Swan Song is really good against Sneak a Show for a few reasons. You need to counter Sneak Attack, so if they hardcast Sneak Attack and you're holding, let's say Flusterstorm, you look pretty stupid. Now you also want to counter Show and Tell, so you also and you want hard counters. You don't want taxing counters because that deck has so many by lands that you can just kind of get up to Bylands
0: lands and Lotus Petal
1: exactly. So all oh, your Sol lands are getting you out of that Spellpierce range, and all of a sudden, you only have four Force Wolves in the deck. Oops. So I've really enjoyed it for that, and the 2-2 doesn't matter in that matchup. It really oh, absolutely. doesn't.
0: Absolutely. And that was really the matchup where it was expected that Swansong would be really good, because there were already, especially Rug decks, playing Envelop. And this is just Envelop that counters more stuff, but gives them a dude.
1: Yeah, so it's also really good if you need to counter certain spells. So, for example, if you're a deck that cannot handle counterbalance on turn 2, and you just have no other answers in your colors, Swan Song could be good for you. Um, If you need to counter Entreat the Angels or Terminus, because you're a deck that just cannot deal with that spell any other way, then this is a good card. Otherwise... Well,
0: while we're on Entreat the Angels and Terminus, this thing hits counterbalance. Which, yeah. is, which is going to be huge, because you hit counterbalance. If you're playing this card, you're probably going to beat them down before the swan matters.
1: Yeah. The only thing I don't like about it in a deck like, say, Rugged Delver, which would love to have this card against uh, Miracles, is the fact that the 2-2 is relevant. It kills your Delver of Secrets.
0: It kills your Delver, yeah. It kills your tempo. Yeah, it really means that you, what you're probably having to do is cast this for blue, and a red to kill the Swan Song with your Lightning Bolt.
1: Yeah, which is not too exciting. However, if you were playing a more mid-range deck that needed to deal with all of those spells, and still had extra removal, like, say, Punishing Fires to deal with your with your little swan, then I think it's fine. I had suggested a Rug Mid-Range deck with this as a sideboard card because you had Punishing Fires. The list didn't work out at the time just due to the fact that you did your counterbalance was kind of awful, but I'm still working on rug Midrange, it's still happening.
0: Well, and another thing about this is, uh, there was just a thread posted to the source that's, uh, if you could have any deck, any recent deck, come back to Vogue, what would it be? And there were actually a lot of people commenting Enchantress, and we are in an enchantment-themed block right now, which means that Enchantress should be getting some number of goodies at some point during this block.
1: So yeah, this could be the answer that you're looking for to a Sigil of the Empty Throne, or even a Solitary Confinement.
0: Right, and not only that, but these will be becoming harder to come by. If something's good enough to see play in uh, Legacy Enchantress, it will certainly be seeing play in uh, younger formats. I agree. And my last new card, something uh, I know is seeing play, because it is seeing play in my deck, is Wear and Tear, which is a Fuse card where, one in a red, destroy target artifact, tear white for destroy target enchantment and you can do both of those which is so good
1: i've really liked wear and tear i mean you like you wanted wear and tear because it hit humility it hits equipment um it hits moat it hits uh what else does it hit counterbalance sometimes maybe it also in counterbalance it flips as a what it can flips you tell as me a this? one or a two yep your choice so
0: it's a great cyborg card in a Miracles deck because you're answering one of uh, the things that, for me at least, is tends to be a big problem, which is equipment, especially with something like True Name Nemesis that can uh, start bashing you down before you get your moat or your energy field or whatever else you play down. Um, also, flipping for two or one is good, and like you said, gets rid of counterbalance. It gets rid of counterbalance and top at the same time. Yes unfortunately white red not something that sees a lot of play outside of the fairly new patriot deck
1: yeah so and of course this only sees play as a one to two of but that's okay still very good i would say one of the best cards out of theros, it uh, this, theros is, right?
0: this is this uh, is dragon's maze because oh, i didn't whatever. go Who in cares? order apparently
1: yeah whatever set that didn't matter except for a few cards
0: yeah you know um Well, and one of the things, though, is it's a 1 or a 2 of in sideboards, but it's a 1 or a 2 of in sideboards of decks that are primarily blue, where a 1 or a 2 of is, you're going to be drawing this card at some point. Yeah. So that's uh, the primary new cards. There's also the stuff out of Commander, but we did an entire show about that just a couple months ago. Uh, I don't think it's really worth getting into, other than some of the cards we expected to see play have not seen nearly as much as they have, especially Toxic Deluge and Unexpectedly Absent
1: but there's still time because journey nemesis is taking over the format or at least the fair part of the format and people are freaking out so give it a give it a while we'll see what happens with toxic deluge and unexpectedly absent because making equipment unexpectedly absent could be something that might be interesting for some
0: and toxic deluge is a mono black golgari charm in many cases
1: yeah, for 3 mana, And you can also clear out X2s, which could be relevant as well.
0: Well, and as Julian said, uh, he has witnessed a Toxic Deluge for 10 to win the game against Elves.
1: It does happen.
0: Yeah. So, uh, But we've we've gone into those a lot before, so not a whole lot of discussion. That's So that's the new cards for the year. Um, let's talk about, not necessarily new decks. Well, the first one's a bit of a new deck. Uh, Deathblade, we kind of 2013 saw the rise and fall of Deathblade, uh, Todd Anderson popularized the deck, it became super super popular, like 4 plus of them in the top 8's of Star City events, and then it just disappeared uh, interestingly though, you're starting to see it come back a bit, uh, personally I think that what happened is a uh, card like Deathrite Shaman encourages people to play it in places where maybe it shouldn't be So people were jamming Deathrite Shaman into a deck and saying, well, we've got Deathrite Shaman, we should put in uh, Abrupt Decay. And I think that's probably how Deathblade was born. And that the sudden rebirth we've kind of had of Deathblade has maybe been, okay, we figured out what we did wrong. We figured out how this deck should be. What do you think, Matt?
1: I don't know. Like, I think at the beginning of the year, basically, Esperblade was the one the... GP in Denver, just because of the fact that a bunch of people were running black-green X decks, and Esperblade was good. Then Esperblade kind of died, and then it was reborn with Deathrite Shamans in about April, March, April, kind of when about we started this podcast, and it was really popular. And like you said, the problem was there was just too many things going on in that deck, the mana base was really weak, and thus, it died. People started playing more Wastelands, more Blood Moons, Tempo decks rose again, and that deck died. Then, now with true Nemesis, blade decks are better because you have, of course, an untargetable, unblockable creature that can swing past with equipment. Therefore, we're seeing the Esper blade decks come back. And for the acceleration, they're running Deathrite Shaman. They're not running the. They're not running as bad of a mana base as they were before, though.
0: certainly. Um, before, you'd see a lot of the lists would be. Uh, they'd be a pretty standard Esper uh, mana base with one Tropical Island for four Deathrite Shamans and three or four Abrupt Decays. And you'd see, and I I talked about why I thought the deck was no good in one of our early episodes, you'd see, like, oh, I have Graveyard Hate, you just don't produce any mana. Sorry.
1: Yeah. Whether or not he's still wrong or right is really up to the person. I think, in this particular metagame, playing a a straight Esperlist is likely better.
0: Yeah, and it's, uh, the decks that are playing green, uh, are they're not playing just Esper with eight extra cards jammed in, like it kind of was at the beginning of Deathblade. They've certainly differentiated themselves into a different deck, not just Esper with stuff crammed into it.
1: Yeah. I just think if you want to be killing, if you want to be playing the Esper plan, you should be running Mass Removal, and if you're running Mass Removal, I wouldn't want to run Deathright Shaman.
0: Certainly. So, uh, Matt, what's the other big deck? Not necessarily a new deck, but the other big deck we've seen a definite rise of recently.
1: Elves. So as you may recall, Elves last year, or in the last couple of years, has been fringe popularity. Whereas you noticed in GP Denver, I can't remember who ran it to Victor. I think it was Matt Nass? Yeah, I think, I think it was Matt Nass was running Elves at uh, GP Denver. And it really kind of came into its own. Um, it was more consistent. Deathrite Shaman made the deck a little bit better. Ha- it also had an alternate win condition. It also do Critterhoof Behemoth came out. So people started to run the Critterhoof win condition, which has now basically become the way the Elves deck wins. So they moved away from the glimpsing and more towards Critterhoof. So you notice in the beginning, kind of, you didn't see a lot of it in the beginning of the year. Um, again... Deathblade, mass removal, that sort of thing, you just didn't see it, started creeping up in, you know, May, April, May, you started to see a lot more of it, and as you know, we interviewed Julian Knob, uh, who was the winner of the Bazaar of Moxen in Paris, and he was running Elves, it's a good deck, it's quite consistent, um, it plays green dudes, you get to turn them sideways.
0: So is there anything in particular about the metagame that you think has caused, uh, about the metagame or new printings or anything that has really caused it to have become such a more dominant force than it was in years past?
1: Gaius Cradle, Deathright Shaman, Critterhoof Behemoth.
0: And Gaius Cradle, obviously the new Legend rule uh, made ha- is is really good for elves, but you don't see it happen that often. Uh, Deathrite Shaman gives them a little bit more stable mana base, I suppose, but it seems to me like not a lot has really changed with that deck. And by the way, uh, I just want to point out, we said that this deck has been around for a while. I am currently looking at a picture of LSV holding his Pro Tour Berlin trophy when uh, Elves had its big coming out party. Which was when? 2008. October oh, 2008.
1: That was a while ago.
0: Yeah. Well, and that was uh, that was not a legacy deck either. I believe that was standard. We Old standard.
1: <sighs> wow. Very old. So yeah, the deck has really come into its own. It's really a a pillar of the format, I would say. It's something that if you're going to a large tournament, you should have tested against elves.
0: Certainly, one of the things we're going to talk about the differences between the metagame uh, from the beginning and end of the year. And elves is the only deck uh, that was in both the fu- the uh, top eight of GP Denver in January and GP DC in November. So. uh I guess on to that, we'll talk about the differences there. Uh, Denver was, what, the 6th of January?
1: Yep, the one I attended.
0: Oh, that's right, I had forgotten about that.
1: Yeah, I think you didn't know me at that point, actually.
0: Oh, that's true, we had not started our uh, podcast. It was not even a glimmer in our Skype accounts.
1: Yeah, point being, I went to this uh, GP, I mean, I'm sure you all had read about it, Basically, if you look at the top eight, you've got something along the lines of, you know, Shardless Bug, Esperblade, uh, Jund. What else is kicking it's around here? Two Esperblade,
0: two Jund, uh, Rug Thresh, Elves, Bug Delver, uh, Blue White Miracles is your top eight.
1: Yeah. So nothing super out of the ordinary, um, at least for a year ago, and even now. Most of these archetypes still exist. Whereas if you look at what are the results of Washington?
0: Uh, DC is Death and Taxes, Dredge, Sneak and Show, Elves, Patriot Delver, Shardless Bug, Esperblade, Blade. So, eight different decks, but I will point out that four of those are Stoneforge Mystic decks.
1: Yeah, and how many of those are true Nemesis decks?
0: Uh, three? Two? Yeah.
1: So now, this was also, mind you, this was two weeks after the sets became legal and were released. I think availability was still partly an issue.
0: Yeah, well, then there's one thing real quick I want to rewind to Denver just briefly is uh, two Jund in the top eight. Jund was definitely uh, a little bit in vogue at the beginning of the year, much more so than it is now. Um, And I think that probably has to do with the printing of Deathrite Shaman. It's a very obvious place for Deathrite, Liliana, Abrupt Decay to be thrown into a deck. Uh, That's probably the reason that that's there is that it's kind of... uh, you see as things develop that people figure out better and better ways, and that's a very obvious way for you to uh, be using your death rate Shamans, your Lilies, everything like that. Um, Sorry, back to DC.
1: Yeah, so looking at the DC results, Sam, what do you have for us?
0: Well, four-blade decks... Considering you were there. I was there. I did really terribly. Um, Four-blade decks is the really big thing that stands out here. I'm not going to... I don't think it's even something to discuss whether anything from that deck gets banned but four blade decks is a lot of the same archetype and you almost want to kind of consider is stoneforge mystic is that up there with like brainstorm and force of will a card that you just expect to be in a large amount of decks now
1: and i I would say with the printing of true nemesis the answer is yes because they go together like peanut butter and chocolate Mm. which over this christmas season i have had probably too much of
0: there's no such thing as too much peanut butter and chocolate
1: Oh, it depends what you have to drink with it. <laughs> the point is, if you look basically at the start and the end of the year, you have these very well-established blade decks, but the but basically the entire middle of the year was everything.
0: Now, unfortunately, I didn't have time to do all the research and see how the metagame really changed month to month, but uh, I think these two tournaments are a really good indicator.
1: Also, too, the rise of combo. I mean, if we look, because there were these mid-range decks with the black-green X, whatever, Shardless Bug, all these decks kind of crushed the Blade decks in the middle of the year. And, of course, these decks are traditionally weak against combo. So what came up? More Sneak and Show, more Ad nauseum Tendrils. I think I've seen more Ad tendrils Tendrils than I've ever seen, at least in America.
0: What I've discussed before, that's something that I really like, is that... Uh... With very little outside input from WotC, there there is a lot of evolution in the metagame just constantly going on.
1: Yeah, Uh, so I would say so far I I enjoyed 2013 kind of establishing that there was a mid-range, that Legacy could have a mid-range, could have both an aggro control, like a Delver kind of matchup, you could have a tribal deck, you could play a lot of decks in Legacy up until November 1st. You could play a Miracles deck, you could play Ad Nauseam Tendrils, you could play Elves, you could play Goblins, you could play Junk, Jund, Shardless Bug. Well,
0: that's certainly still true, and that's something that a lot of people say they love about Legacy. You can play all those decks. Um, whether or not you will be consistent, and when I say consistent, I don't mean winning a lot. I mean whether or not that deck will make a top 8 once a month all year is less likely. Yeah. So we, I discussed there was that thread on the forum or on the source that was... What deck would you like to see back? And a very common answer has been Zoo. And I agree that Zoo is something I'd like to see come back. And now Matt pointed out to me that Zoo Zoo is not gone. It top-aided in Seattle, which was just, what, two months ago?
1: Yeah, Sean Yu?
0: But uh, it's not something that's been consistently seeing uh, a lot of high-level results. And I think that's the kind of deck that being a really just pure aggro deck is something that can challenge the format a lot and kind of force the format to have more answers for different things.
1: Now, let's see, like, I mean, we can actually just go over to see if Zoo theoretically is well-positioned or not right now. Now, we don't see performance, but that doesn't mean that it's not necessarily waiting to return. So, if we break it down, let's just go through the archetypes. So, we're going to say Zoo is probably faster than most of the other decks in the format, barring Storm Combo. Would you agree?
0: I, I think that's fair.
1: Okay, so the deck probably runs something along the lines of four Wild and the Cattle, four Curd Ape or something like Curd Ape, four Tarmogoyf, um, and then you're running probably another set of four creatures, and then you're running Removal. Well, now, so running... I will
0: point out, there are no Curd Apes in Sean's list.
1: Sure, I'm saying Curd Ape-esque creature. Yeah. One drop, more than one power. Um, then, you can run what? Chain Lightnings, Lightning Bolts, Path to Exiles. You run a lot of removal, a lot of burn. Um, You can run Lightning, Helix, whatever. My point is this. I think Zoo actually has some game. Because if we we do theoretical archetype analysis, just the matchups, are you going to be good against a Blade deck? Well, okay. If you're a Zoo deck, you have lots and lots of removal. So you're gonna hit their Stoneforge Mystic and they're gonna be caught probably stranded with a with a equipment in hand unless they have true nemesis. Fine. So did zoo do traditionally decently well against the mental misstep blade decks when blade decks were basically at their peak? Yeah. It zoo adjusted.
0: Too- it became more the big style than the lots and lots of one drops.
1: Exactly. And they did traditionally quite well. You have access to Red Elemental Blast. Um, you have Path to Exiles. You have Ancient Grudges. You're in the right colors to be doing some damage and removing guys. So I think Zoo is pretty well pretty well positioned against the Blade decks. What about the mid-range decks? What do you think, Sam?
0: Well, um, the big weakness, I think, is how removable the creatures are. And now, again, going off Sean's list, which is not necessarily what everyone would be running, but uh, every creature in this list, the turn that it's played dies to both abrupt decay and lightning bolt okay and that's and obviously very swords dangerous. and obviously swords everything dies to swords
1: yeah so that means what are we doing to kind of deal with that well we can either run an untargetable creature or we just run more creatures so what about young pyromancer
0: Ooh, I I don't know. You're playing probably 16 spells, Lightning Bolt, Punishing Fire, Slash Chain Lightning, Swords, and Green Sun Zenith. I don't know if you've got enough stuff for Pyro Answer.
1: Fair. Maybe Maybe not.
0: Maybe you could add some more stuff. Um, You could add another set of paths. That gets you up to 20 cards, which puts you... Pretty close to where Delver is at, which is where you would want Pyromancer to be. So um, maybe that is a, a potential idea that would be very much in the small zoo kind of area where everything is cheap and small guys maybe playing uh, step links again because, you know, as many guys as possible, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Or just running a creature with Hexproof or Shroud. Maybe there's like a Sylvan Skywalker or Ledgewalker or whatever is one of them. Or Skylasher, or whatever. They're, they're, I'm sure there's creatures out there that you could find that are a little bit more techy, but maybe not quite as powerful.
0: So it sounds like one of the, it sounds like what we're almost getting at is that Zoo could be playable with one one extra card. We just got to find that card.
1: Yeah, it needs a little extra something. And so now, it-
0: there are other things people have done with Zoo. Obviously, it's a very flexible uh, archetype. What you can put in there. People have run Stoneforge in it, because. You've got the white, you've got a lot of creatures to carry a a, a sort of x and y or a Gta. maybe that's a possibility. I think probably not. you'd probably be rather be somewhere else, but that's an idea
1: yeah, I mean right now we're also we're kind of thinking in the Niazu Zoo strain. What about a rug zoo st- strain right? I mean, if you're running wild in the cattle, sure, your wild in the cattle doesn't get to be you know three, three. Two, 2 maybe it's good enough. Delver of Secrets might even just replace that. Delver, Tarmogoyf, um...
0: I think where Snapcaster you're going... Mage for your...
1: I think where whatever. you're
0: going, you might be better off with just doing Naya with a blue splash.
1: Yeah. Blue splash for Delver might not be too bad.
0: I think your problem you would have there, at least me personally, I would have this problem. Oh, your mana that, would be shit. Is that you do that thing where you go, well, I'll splash blue for Delver. Well, I'm playing blue and I got a bunch of fetches. I might as well play Brainstorm. Well, while I'm paying Brainstorm, then you start looking at your mana base and going, man, this is a bad idea.
1: Yeah. So I th- I still think it's possibly viable. It's just getting the mix and the right meta. I mean, it's really up to your meta. If you're Certainly. not getting punished for certain things.
0: And that's true of of any uh, deck you want to try. I think that's why I try and say in the general big uh, North American meta, I I just think that it's not well positioned right now.
1: Well, somebody start working on it again. Let's see what happens. The other deck I think they were saying was Survival, and I think everybody knows my opinion on Survival.
0: Matt wants Survival unbanned because he's an idiot.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Because everybody else whines and complains that they couldn't play their things because they didn't want to adapt. When I was playing, back in my day, when we were playing against Survival, I could still play a Survival variant that was not Vengevine, or I could run any deck that decided to run Grave Hate. And it was great.
0: Well, I think the first half of your ore is the real problem there. Is that, while, yes, Vengevine was awesome. It, does, it Vengevine being awesome is not the problem. You can do broken stuff with survival. And that's the real problem with it. Now, obviously, a lot of the best stuff resolves, revolves around stuff being in your graveyard. Especially Vengevine. Um, that's... One argument I have heard in favor of unbanning Survival, not that I'm in favor of it, uh, just to throw that out there, is that there is a lot more graveyard hate being played than there was at that time, especially, maybe not graveyard hate, but things that affect the graveyard, uh, especially Deathrite Shaman.
1: May I list the cards that have been printed since it's banning that would nut it? May I list them? Go for it. Snapcaster Mage, Surgical Extraction, okay, rest in peace. There's always the everpresent pithing needle. Okay, you have extrapate, which was always there. Did I mention rest in peace is a good card against that deck? Did I did I already talk about I, rest I in peace? I think the
0: primary thing in the existing meta is, cage is that I think the primary thing is really that your deathrite shaman can just go, oh well, you know, I'm just gonna exile that vengevine immediately and gain life. Uh, I think the problem is what we're discussing is ways to answer it. And we're getting onto Sean's definition of when something should be banned, which is when you have to play a 56 card deck. Either you're playing that deck, or you're playing something. You're playing main deck things to beat it.
1: Well, are we not going to start seeing main deck ways to deal with True Name Nemesis?
0: Well, and the th- main deck ways to deal with True Name Nemesis, I think, are more things that address the rest of the format anyway, compared to say survival. Fair. But yeah, anything else for uh, year end 2013?
1: Did you enjoy playing Magic this year? Did you do anything spectacular in Magic this year?
0: Uh, I am almost finished with my Vintage deck this year. I'm at 74 out of 75.
1: And Lotus that's... is the last one?
0: Lotus is the last one, because I'm doing it the hard way.
1: Um, You also went to Washington, so that's something. I went to
0: Washington, my first out-of-town GP. I had been to Gen Con before, but that's a general event, so it's the first out-of-town Magic event I've gone to.
1: Yeah, what did I do this year? I went to... Denver in January, Star City Games in in March or April uh, in Seattle, went to Seattle again in the summer, went to the Vegas Invitational just recently in December, and then went one other place in the fall as well. So I did a decent bit of traveling this year, four times. And you've four or and five you times.
0: put up some pretty respectable results at a couple of those events, if I recall correctly.
1: Yeah, not too bad. Um... November twenty twelve was when I top eight at the Star City Games event and got the invitational invite. Uh since then I put up like top thirty top thirty two, top sixty four. And it was it was fine. So nothing super spectacular. I think wh- how many duels did I get this year? How many beta duels did I pick up this year? I picked up Savannah, Savannah, Taiga, Tropical Island, uh...
0: And a very nice Ziploc baggie to keep them in, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, I picked up. I didn't. I didn't. Definitely didn't do as many duels this year. This year was definitely a cutback on the duel collecting, due to paying for school more so, which was very sad. Yeah,
0: that's a big project.
1: Yeah. Oh well. But I'm four away now. So to, actually three away now. So it doesn't matter. Getting close. Yes.
0: I I think that's uh, that's about all we wanted to do for the wrap up.
1: Yeah, I think we don't have too much more to talk about. It's been a I think this year has been a good year. Our first year is everyday eternal. I've really enjoyed doing the cast with uh with you, Sam.
0: Oh, I've enjoyed it as well. I will say one negative thing is that we've uh been we've all been a little busy recently, so we haven't been able to be as consistent, but hopefully we'll be returning to a bit more regular schedule in twenty fourteen, making sure uh we get out there more often.
1: make sure Kobe wakes up from his eternal slumber. yeah, I liked our old casting schedule of Tuesday nights. that was actually. Yeah, Kinda nice.
0: If I wasn't like fixing the internet on Tuesday nights, I'd be there.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe maybe soon, you never know.
0: Yep. Alright, well, uh happy 2014, everyone. Have a good one.
1: Yeah, have a good one. Happy New Year.
0: Thanks everyone for stopping by. Your feedback is always appreciated. Email us at everyday at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Or follow us on Twitter at EternalMTG.